if you have your Bibles, um, you can go ahead and take those out and turn with me to um, the book of John. And we find ourselves um, today in uh, John chapter 18. Um, why are we in John chapter 18? Well, because last week we finished John chapter 17, right? And we are, um, we're innovative and trendy like that. We just uh, pick up where we left off in the sermons. I, when I was uh, in my 20s, wanting to be a pastor and even a wannabe pastor then, um, I thought that you needed to be innovative and trendy um, and original. And gosh, now that I'm in my early 40s still <clears throat> for a couple more months, um, man, I just want to be faithful, faithful to the text. And so um, God's word is given to us to grow us and to mature us. That's what its purpose is. My job is just to, to deliver the mail. That's what my grandpa would say. <clears throat> my job is just to deliver the mail. It's just to read the text, preach the text, show you the relevance of the text and try to help you to apply that text of scripture and the truths in it to your word, I mean, to your lives. And so that's what we wanna do here um, in John 18. So we're gonna be looking at 11, just 11 verses this morning. Um, if you're using one of those pew Bibles, you haven't found it already, it's uh, page 904. All right, here's what John holds for us from the word of God. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook, the brook Kidron, where there, were, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met, and often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, he went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom he gave me, I have, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it out and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. That servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we read in this text and as we think about your precious son, whom you gave up as, a, as an offering, an offering that would satisfy your just wrath, an offering that would, we would find our forgiveness. As we think about him, may we know who he is. May you speak to us in this time through your word. May you apply it appropriately to our lives. May it calm the confusion that we may have in even this moment. May we see you, Jesus, for whom you are, our sovereign Lord. It is in your name that we pray, amen. Thank you. You could be seated. 
let me just, uh, hopefully for just a minute, let me fill in some of the background um, that, that, that the other gospel accounts, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke give for us um, what's happening here. Some of it Luke uh, leaves out just a little bit of some of the events, but um, some of you are gonna be familiar with, some of them maybe in this you weren't familiar. Some of you may have like an idea of what happened when Jesus was arrested, but there may be some events here that John covers that maybe you didn't know about, or maybe you had forgotten. But let's just fill in um, just a, a little bit. So we've been in the 17th chapter of the book of John and the 17th chapter, um, it's kind of finished it up, what's called the upper room discourse. It finished up um, the high priestly prayer. And so Jesus has been in a room upstairs in the city of Jerusalem and Jesus has finished his prayer and Jesus and his disciples, there's 11 of them now. Judas we see shows up again here in the 18th chapter, but there's the 11 original, the OGs are with Jesus. And so they've exited out of this building that they've been stating in, in this home. They've crossed over the Kidron Valley over this creek and Jesus has entered into a garden. As Jesus enters into the garden, he tells eight of the disciples to stay put at the entrance of the garden. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him. They go further into the garden. Jesus stops, tells Peter, James, and John, stay here, watch and pray. And then I think it is Luke that says, Jesus goes a little bit further, a stone's thrown throw away. And Jesus says, as Matthew says, that his soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. He tells them to watch and pray. He goes a little further and then Jesus falls upon his knees and he begins to pray to the Father. It is here as Luke records that Jesus begins to sweat great drops of blood. I mean, that's a real condition. The vessels in Jesus's face because of the, the turmoil and the stress and the agony that he's under, that they, they burst, the capillaries burst and blood mixes with his sweat as he sweats drops of blood as he prays. It is here that Jesus asks, as he prays, he asks the Father to take this cup. We see that again in John 18, this cup, take this cup from me. Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, Jesus says, my, my will, uh, nevertheless, let your will be done, not my will. The cup that Jesus is referring to is the, the cup that represents God's wrath. That's what it represents. It is God's just anger, God's just judgment coming out for sin. But you gotta remember that it won't be the, it won't be the beatings. It won't be the, the cat of nine tails. It won't be them plucking the beard from his face. It won't be the nails. It will be none of that will be the most excruciating for Jesus as he dies on the cross. But the most excruciating that he will experience is whenever he drinks in, he drinks that wrath. When he drinks down the father's divine judgment, his just judgment for our sins, for every believer's sin, Jesus will take that on and he will drink that bitter cup. And it is in this moment that Jesus prays. Now listen, it's no accident that Jesus does this in a garden. It's no accident that Jesus finds himself in a garden. Remember in the book of Genesis, it's in a garden when the first Adam, our great, 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 great grandfather, Adam disobeyed God, rebelled against the father's will, sinned against him and brought the wrath upon creation. And it is here in the garden of Gethsemane where the new Adam, Jesus, will obey the Father. 
He will submit to the Father's will. He will take on the sins of the world in order to satisfy the wrath of God for those who will trust in his son. This is no ordinary arrest. I mean, I don't know if there's such a thing. I've never arrested anyone, nor have I ever been arrested. Uh, Maybe there are ordinary arrests. I don't know, maybe Steve or Chuck or Jeremiah can tell us that there are ordinary arrests. Maybe some of you have been on the other side of the law. Not, not, I don't know, I'm not judging. Maybe you've been arrested. Maybe there are ordinary arrests, but this much we know, this story is not an ordinary arrest. And the reason why it's no ordinary arrest is because this is no ordinary man. This is the son of God. And that is what this arrest is declaring Jesus is declaring that he is who he said he is. He is the son of God and we see it. We see a thread that runs throughout this story, this narrative that Jesus is no ordinary man. He's an extraordinary man. Here's the main point that I want you to think about as we get through this sermon, as we have read this text. It is this, that in spite of sinners who despise him, a friend who betrays him, disciples who fail him, Jesus is still Lord over every situation, including his own death. But don't think for a minute that Jesus is a victim here. Jesus has already stated back in John 10 that I lay down my life. No one takes my life from me. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to pick it back up again. Jesus is no victim that what's unfolding here is all according to the Father's plan. It is all what Jesus had already submitted to and agreed to before the foundation of this earth. That Jesus is the lamb who was slain before the foundations of this earth ever existed. Before Genesis one, before Jesus speaks this world into existence, Jesus had already agreed to be a demonstration of God's great love and God's great grace upon his creation and especially for his people. Jesus has already agreed to that. And as we read this, we see that. We see that Jesus is no ordinary man. As we read this, we see that Jesus is in control, in sovereign control over everything, including his own death. Jesus is in control. Jesus is in the driver's seat, not the co-pilot seat, certainly not the navigation seat. Certainly he's not sitting in first class or coach. Jesus is piloting this thing, even his own arrest. And why do I bring that out? So that we, you and I would respond to him appropriately. How do you respond to Jesus's sovereignty? How do you respond to the truth that Jesus is in control? Here's how you respond to him. You trust him. You trust him. That if Jesus is sovereign over his own death and the timing and the circumstances and the situation surrounding his death, then here's the truth. Jesus is sovereign over whatever you may be going through. When we say Jesus is sovereign, we mean that Jesus is sovereign over everything. That we need to understand what sovereignty means, that sovereignty is not the same thing as omniscience. I saw somebody the other day use the word sovereignty and I wanna say like, hey, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Here's what sovereignty means. It means that Jesus is in control of everything. Omniscience means Jesus knows everything and he is omniscient. He knows everything, but omniscience is not the same thing as sovereignty. Omniscience is Jesus knows everything. Sovereignty is that Jesus is in control of everything. And here what's being put on display is not just Jesus' omniscience that he knows everything, but it's Jesus' sovereignty. 
that Jesus controls everything. We see this in verse number four. And then Jesus, and look how John says it, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Oh man, that's good. Isn't that good? Because again, if Jesus is in control of this, it's the argument from the greater to the lesser. If Jesus is in control of this, then Jesus is in control of whatever you may go through in spite of sinners who despise him and friends who betray him and disciples who fail him, Jesus is still in control. And what that means is even when your friends, even when your enemies despise you and even when your friends betray you and even whenever your friends fail you and loved ones fail you, Jesus is still in control. Jesus wants us to be clear of that. Jesus is not being caught off guard. He's not being taken by surprise. No, he's not having to adjust his plan that this is the plan. And here is the plan. That God is allowing bad things to happen to a good person. I mean, that seems like that's a question we have to wrestle with so often is why do, right, why do bad things happen to seemingly good people? Have you ever asked that? Have you ever experienced an event in your life when you looked at it and you saw it and you said, hey, that's a good person. They're not deserving of this bad thing. Has it occurred to them? Well, here's two truths is first of all is there's no one good. We're all just relatively good, right? We're not really genuinely good. That's what the Bible declares. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And nevertheless, here's the other truth that we need to read in and know that the very storyline of the gospel is that God allows a bad thing to happen to not just a good person, but the perfect person. And we see it here in this text. As I read through this, I, I, I can't help, but whenever the Bible speaks about disciples, I, I tend to think myself in there, right? Because we're disciples of Christ. And as I was thinking through this, I, I thought of this question is, why did Jesus even include the disciples in this part to begin with? I mean, why take the disciples into the garden with him? Why not leave them in the upper room? You know, like, hey, you boys stay, hang out here. I'll see you in three days. Like, why didn't he just do that, right? Because it's not like they were of much help. He takes eight, stay here. The others, three, he takes them. They can't even stay awake. Hey, stay, watch and pray. I'm going over here. And then Jesus comes back a little bit later and Peter, James, and John, his trusted three, what are they doing? Right? They're taking a cat nap. Jesus rebukes them. Hey guys, you can't even watch and pray. Are you kidding me? You can't even pray for one hour. Do you not know what's happening? I mean, it's not like they're much help. And then there's Peter, right? Hey, guard, stand guard. I want you to watch and pray. And then whenever this mob shows up, what's Peter do? Pull out a sword and cut off a guy's ear. And Jesus is like, great. Now I got to do this other miracle and heal this guy's ear. So it's not like they're helping the situation much to begin with. So why does, why does Jesus include them? Why does he take them? And I think it is this, it's to once again, to teach them that who he is. It's that once again, as we see throughout this text, it's to reassure them and to reveal to them that he's no ordinary man, but he is the very son of God. He is who he is claimed to be all throughout his life. He's claimed to be the son of God and he's showing them once again. So whenever he's gone from them, their faith will, be, will rest upon him and they will know that, his, that their faith is not in vain. It's the same reason why the story's captured here. Same reason why you and I are included, if you would, vicariously into the story so that you and I would know who Jesus is. That's the whole point of why John has been writing this gospel record. 
John says that for us and we'll, we'll get there in a couple of months, <clears throat> believe it or not. But in a couple of months, we'll get there whenever we get over into um, John, the 21st chapter. But that's what he says in the 21st chapter. John says, I'm writing this account so that we, you and I who read it and have it, we may believe. And here's what we need to believe, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of God. And that by believing that we may have life in his name. This is a very confusing and scary moment for the disciples. A real mob with real weapons, with real torches, being led by one of the former disciples, a former friend has entered into the garden. Jesus has been agonizing in prayer. And now it seems as if Jesus is giving up and giving in and surrendering. And let's be honest, the disciples have still been confused about the plan. We know that from Peter. I mean, Peter's getting ready to take on this mob himself. I mean, you know, God love his heart. He's like, hey, I'll take them all on. And yet we, are, we know this, that they're still unsure of the plan despite the warnings and the teaches, despite the numbers of times that Jesus had told them that his hour is coming, that he's not gonna be with them very much longer. He's gonna depart. He's gonna go to the father. As many times he told them, he's gonna lay down his life. He's gonna give up his life. They're gonna take his life and still they don't get it. And this is a confusing and scary moment. Jesus works into this moment. He works in four assurances of his sovereign control in the midst of his arrest. It's one thing for Jesus just to declare that he's in control. It's another thing for Jesus to show his control. And Jesus shows his control. He reveals and gives evidence to his sovereignty throughout this. And the truth for us that we can grab a hold of is what is needed most in the midst of life's most confusing and scary moments is to know who Jesus is and to come and to trust to Jesus' sovereignty over all things. That's a key moment in our discipleship. That's a key moment for those of us in here who are Christians that we need to grow in, we need to grasp that when we come to know that Jesus is in complete and utter control over all things in our lives, that doesn't mean he's authored everything in your life. Bible's very clear that God doesn't author confusion. He doesn't author sin. He doesn't author evil, but can God take confusing times? Can he take evil circumstances and use them for, his, for your good and his redemptive purposes? You betcha. And when you come to understand that and to trust in him and to allow him to do that in your life, man, that's a freeing moment. That's, that brings freedom to you and healing for your past. I don't know, maybe some of you have experienced that in your past. Maybe in the past, you've experienced something that's been confusing and hurtful and hard to get through. The, the, the meaning of it didn't really make sense. Why am I going through this? Why is this occurring to me? Why has this happened to me? Jesus, why me? I feel like I've lived a good life. I've given to the church. I've done this, I've done that. And now there's this, maybe that's in your past. And maybe just maybe today, as you see Jesus's sovereignty over all things, maybe you can say like, Jesus, I understand it better. That you maybe didn't author that thing in me, but you want to heal me and grow me through it. And you want to display who you are through it. May I trust in you more to take that situation in my past? Or maybe it's a current situation. You know, I don't know, uh, maybe you've been around my preaching enough, but I, I'm not super fond of, uh, of social media. I mean, it's okay, right? Some of us connected through social media and that's a good thing, but oftentimes social media just, I don't know, maybe it's my own heart because it's like a lot of times it just, you know, elicits a lot of 
uh, of jealousy. Like, you know, this week I've been laid up in Orlando. I mean, I, I had a, a, a tough life this week, right? But you didn't see any pictures of my toes in the sand, did you? Right, isn't that what people do? They put current sitch, current situation, and they put their feet in the sand. Like, let me just say this. Your feet never belong on the internet, right? There's only a small sector of people in our society that want to see your stinking nasty feet, and you don't want to feed that sector of society. So don't put your feet on the internet. You didn't see me post a picture of a fruity drink with an umbrella in it, did you? No, you didn't see that this week. Current situation, me laid out by the pool. You know, no, right? Because I just, listen, and oftentimes though, that's what we want. Current situation is something glorious or grand or great, but nobody wants to put current situation. My life is chaotic and I'm scared to death and I don't know what to do, right? Nobody puts that on the internet. And that may be your current situation. And what you need right now isn't for Jesus just to show up and fix the situation, although he may do that. But what you need most is you need to know who Jesus is, that he's sovereign and he's good and he's in complete control. And ultimately he's protecting you. And that's what Jesus is telling the disciples here. He's bringing them along, letting them tag along so that they can get a glimpse of his glory again before he ascends to the Father, before he lays down his life for them. Let me get a glimpse of, the, of my glory. I don't want you to think for a minute I'm a victim here. I want you to think for a minute that these boys have their upper hand on me. No, no, no. All of this I'm doing, I'm doing it for the Father's glory, to display my own glory, and I'm doing it for your good. It will be the means by which you will be saved. That's why he's doing it, and that's why he's assuring them. And so there are four, that's right, there are four, we'll move fast. There are four assurances of God, of Jesus's sovereignty, four proofs of his sovereignty. It is found, and watch this, watch this. Like I, I listened to some great preaching this week. I thought it was gonna be Alistair Begg. It was supposed to be Alistair Begg, maybe one of my favorite preachers, and then I got there and it wasn't Alistair Begg. I was quite uh, disappointed for the first few minutes, but the preaching was great and on par. Uh, the CEO of Acts 29, the organization, that, the church planning organization that we went to on this conference, the CEO got up and said, uh, many of you asked me where Alistair Begg is, and um, I, I, here's my answer, I don't know. <laughs> this is where he is. He asked a couple months ago to be released from his obligation to speak, and he did, but nevertheless, the preaching was absolutely fantastic, and I noticed something about them that their points all started with the same letter, and so I just thought I would give it a shot and see how it goes, so... Here's the four. His promises. He gives them a glimpse through his promises, his power, his protection, and his plan. The four assurances that Jesus is in control. That's what that means, that Jesus is in absolute control in this moment. He just doesn't declare it to his disciples, but he proves it to them as he's doing here, comes in four ways. His promises, his power, his protection, his plan. First, his promises. We looked at verse number four, but let's read it again because it is fantastic. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward and he said to them, whom do you seek? Verse number five, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Now the English translators add the he on there. Now, all of scripture is inerrant and inspired. But in the original, the he isn't even there. It would just be, and Jesus said to him, I am. 
It occurs again in verse number seven. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered them, I told you that I am he. That when the mom tells Jesus that they are seeking Jesus of Nazareth, that would be Jesus's earthly name. That it would be Jesus's human name. As a young boy, he would have been Jesus, uh, son of Joseph, if you will, or Jesus of Nazareth, the town in which he came from, just as I would be known as uh, Andy, son of Richard, or I could be known as Andy from Walton, because that's where, where I'm from. Jesus is of Nazareth. And so they say to him, we are seeking Jesus of Nazareth, but look how Jesus responds. Jesus responds not with just affirming, I am he, but in fact, Jesus is also using the same language that he's used throughout his, throughout his life and ministry. That you all, for those of you that have been tracking with us in the book of John, maybe you'll pick up on the fact that Jesus uses the phrase, I am. Remember in the book of John, there are seven I am statements that Jesus makes throughout the gospel of John. Seven times in the book of John, Jesus uses the phrase, I am, and then Jesus says, like, for example, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. And here's what we said about all seven of those statements is they are first a claim in and of themselves. They are a claim to Jesus of deity. And when Jesus just says, I am, what he's saying when he says, I am, is he's saying, I am God. That all the way back in Exodus, whenever Moses goes out and he's minding his own business and the children of Israel are slaves in Egypt and Moses is out in the desert, desert and Moses sees this strange sight. It's a burning bush, a bush that's on fire, a bush that hasn't been consumed and it intrigues Moses and Moses draws closer to the bush and then a voice from this burning bush. So you've got a bush on fire. You think, hey, maybe lightning struck, but I didn't see any lightning. Maybe it just combusted. I don't know. It's on fire, but then he notices it's not burning up. It's on fire, but it's not being consumed. He draws closer and then the, a voice comes out of the bush and it's the voice of God. And he tells Moses his plan to redeem his people from, from Egypt, to rescue his people. I've been hearing my people and they've been crying out and I see that they're in slavery and I've come to rescue them and to, and to, uh, yeah, to rescue them and to save them. Now, here's what I want you to do, Moses, right? Whoa, 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 God, I thought you said you came to rescue. What do I have? Well, no, 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 you got a role in this, Moses. I want you to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses is pretty much, you're nuts. Like, what am I supposed to say? I saw a burning bush in the wilderness and it said, Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. I'm gonna tell him, I saw this burning bush and it said for you to let all of your slaves go. Like, and so he asked, who should I say sent me? And the voice from the burning bush says, I am, I am. And Jesus, when Jesus shows up seven times, he says, I am. I am is a claim to his deity. It goes all the way back to Exodus. It's the personal name of God. I am God, that is what he's saying but not only is it a claim to his deity, they also teach us about the nature of his salvation. And implied in each one of these promises 
is and implied in each one of these I am statements is a promise that Jesus is making to his disciples. The promises of Jesus are rooted in the person and his character. I am, Jesus says, the bread of life. The promise is a satisfaction for souls. Hungry, what do hungry people want? That's food, right? The children of Israel, when they're in the wilderness and they get hungry and they cry out to God, God, feed us. What, how does God feed them? With manna from heaven. Bread falls from the sky like dew and covers everything and God is feeding them. Jesus will show up on the scene and Jesus will take a hungry crowd. Then Jesus will know that they're hungry and Jesus will take bread and he'll take some fish and he'll multiply it and he'll feed the crowd and they'll go, oh my gosh, what a miracle. And then Jesus will stand up and go, hey, did you, you liked that miracle, didn't you? Well, let me tell you what that miracle means. The miracle means I am the bread of life. Just as your belly was hungry, your souls are hungry. And I've come to feed your souls. That's what Jesus is saying. The promises he gives, they find their fulfillment, not in the things that God gives us, but they find their fulfillment in God. They find their fulfillment in Jesus. That what that means, what that means for us is that through a relationship with Jesus, that Jesus is enough. That through the worst of trials, that Jesus is sufficient and Jesus is enough. That is what he is teaching throughout the I am statements. He's giving them promises. And in each promise, basically what Jesus is saying, in each promise is, I am enough. I am enough. I am satisfactory. I am all sufficient. I can give you enough. And so even in this, what Jesus is saying, hey, I understand you're, I understand you're scared. I understand that you're confused, but know this, I am enough. I'm enough. Stay with me. Keep the faith. Stick with me. We're going to get through this. And ultimately, the things that you need, see, the disciples still think what they need is they need freedom from their oppressor. The disciples still think, man, this place would be a whole lot better if we didn't have Rome breathing down our neck. This would be a whole lot better if, if Jesus would set up an earthly kingdom. And what Jesus is saying, I've not come to set up an earthly kingdom. I haven't come to overthrow Rome. I haven't come to set you up as kings, but I've come to die for your sins that I am enough. Your greatest need is for my salvation. Your greatest need is to be in right relationship with me. And I'm dying for that for you in that. Like you talk about key discipleship moments, that's a key discipleship moment. When you, when you understand that my need for Jesus trumps every other need in my life. Well, right now I feel like I need a new clutch for the old car. Your need for Jesus trumps that need. I'm not saying that's not a real need. I mean, if you need a clutch for your car, you need a clutch for your car. What I'm saying is your greatest need, greater than a need for a faithful spouse, greater than a need for children, but greater than your need for obedient children, greater than your need for obedient children, greater than any need that you have, your greatest need. Jesus has fulfilled that. He's satisfactory. He's sufficient. He's enough. And Jesus is telling them that I've made promises to you and I'm going to keep those promises. I'm sufficient. Number two is his power. I love this. I, I got to be honest. I, I missed this. Like, I don't know how I missed this. I'm, you know, you do the, I'm, I'm, I'm 44 years old and I'm, you know, 
I didn't know this was in the Bible until this week whenever I read it and studied it. I mean, I'd already read through the book of John a couple different times and still I missed that. But let's look at Jesus's power. Jesus's power is displayed in two ways. The first way we find it in, in, in verse number six, when Jesus said to them, I am he, this mob drew back and then they fell to the ground. Good grief. And when Jesus utters his name, the personal name of God, I am. That when he utters his name, he lays them out. I mean, think of the irony that's here. Remember what John said in the beginning? He said that, he didn't say, hey, we, we, we went around and we found the weakest men we could find. That's all we could find and we showed up. That's not what he said. He said, we gathered up soldiers and officers and powerful religious men. That's the Pharisees. And they've entered into this garden and they've got lanterns and they've got torches and they've got weapons. Like we don't know how many of them, but it's more than like two or three. There's a whole group of them. They got weapons, swords, spears, pitchforks. Who knows? They got something there. When they come in here and they've come to arrest a single man, a man who never carried a weapon, an itinerant preacher, a rabbi, a carpenter, and he just utters his name. And at the name of God, they fall down. They fall over into a pile like dominoes. Again, Jesus is no helpless victim. They are the ones who fall helplessly at Jesus's feet. But Jesus's power, it is real power. Oh, isn't that good news? It's not fake power. It's not phantom power. But Jesus's power is real power and his power comes in his word. That he has complete control over them that one word is enough to lay them out. In fact, Jesus will say later on that he has a whole legion of angels that could lay everyone out at a word. There is the power released. Jesus created the world by a word. He can destroy the world by a word. He spoke and it all came into existence. He will speak again in the future and it will all go out of existence. And that means meanwhile, in between, in between this heaven and earth and the new heaven and earth, Jesus is still in control. He's still sovereign and he's Lord and he controls it with whatever he says. The second display of his great power comes in the last miracle that Jesus will perform before his death. Maybe someday that may be a trivia question you're asked. What's the last miracle that Jesus performs before his death? And I think the answer would be here, he heals Malachus's ear. Verse number 10, that Simon Peter having sword, he drew it and he struck, uh, struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? Luke records in his gospel that Jesus reaches out and he heals, he touches Malachus' ear. And this is, serves as a reminder of Jesus's great power. It also serves, I believe, as the power of unbelief. I mean, just think if you were in that crowd. I, I say this often because I hear it often that people would say, hey, if I could just see a bona fide miracle, 
Like if I, could, I, I, I have trouble believing God and trusting in God and accepting him by faith. But if I just had some kind of tangible evidence, a, a, a miracle. I was in uh, college, before I was in Bible college, I was at uh, actually what was formerly Lexington Community College. And I had, a, I had a professor there and that's what he said. He was like, God, if you're real, show up strike me with lightning. And I was praying for the same thing. Well, it was the first time in this class that he and I were on the same page there. I was praying, yeah, God striking with lightning. And God didn't. And he was a man that would say, if I could just see a bona fide miracle, I could believe. And look at these men, they see two. You go to arrest this, I mean, poor itinerant preacher, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says one word. And next thing you know, you're out cold. That's, would be pretty powerful, right? And the next thing you know is a dude pulls out a sword and a guy's ear gets lobbed off and Jesus just reaches down and picks it up and heals it. Don't you think you'd say, hold on, boys, I don't know what we're about to do, but I don't think this is a good idea. Don't you think that's what you would do? And we see the hardness of their hearts and unbelief. No, no, no. I think we'll carry out the plan and we're gonna arrest Jesus. Probably a bad idea, right? And we see the hardness of hearts and open and, and unbelief. And, and I bring that out again because as the writer of Hebrews says, um, don't continue to harden your heart. That's why I bring that out. It's don't continue to harden your heart. How do you continue to harden your heart towards the Lord? Well, you continue to tell him no. You continue to grieve his Holy Spirit. That even today you may have gotten up this morning and there are there, there may have been, I'm, some of you may not normally attend church and yet there was something in you that said, hey, it's probably a good idea that you go to the church. What is that? that I think that's the Holy Spirit drawing on you, right? And then you're sitting here and maybe just maybe the Spirit's working, dealing with your own heart about your own life. Maybe it's an area of sin. Maybe it's something else in your life. Maybe it's an area of unbelief. Maybe he's calling you today to believe in the Lord. Today's the day of salvation. Maybe he's calling you today to repent. What is repentance? Repentance is turning from sin. It's for you stopping and pausing and, and humbling yourself before God and admitting that you've sinned against him and saying with true affections and real feelings, God, I've sinned against you. I've done things that you've commanded me not to do. I've tried to live my life for myself. I've gone my own way. I've done my own thing. I've sinned against you. And, the, and my thought life and my pattern on my, my very life, the way that I've spent my money, the way that I spent my, my sexuality, all of these ways, I know I've turned against you. And that's what repentance is. It starts there with an admission that you're a sinner in need of a savior. But that's a humbling thing. The truth is many of us, many people, I shouldn't say many of us because I'm not included in that, but many people will stand before Jesus and the number one thing that will send them to hell will be their own stinking pride because the gospel was beneath them. They couldn't get on their knees and admit that they sinned before a father, even though they know, even though they look at the pattern of their own life and they know they've sinned against God and they'll say, well, I wasn't as bad as that guy. We think somehow God's gonna grade on a scale. God's gonna grade on some kind of curve, like your eighth grade math teacher. He's gonna look at what, how good everybody in the class is and goes, well, the average in the room was really a C, so we're gonna bump everybody up. It doesn't work that way. Scripture is clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you could enter on your own, then why would Jesus come and go through what he's about to go through? 
What other testimony do you need that you're a sinner in need of a savior? And how much more glorious and beautiful of a savior do you need than the perfect son of God that lived a life that you could not live, that lived truly perfect and stood here in this garden that prayed great um, drops of, of blood for you and gave up his life, endured the scourging, endured the beating, drank down the cup, the bitter cup that he wanted to he wanted to avoid that he prayed and petitioned the father to take from him that bitter cup you deserved. And he drank it for us. But the truth is, is for many of us, that's beneath us. We wouldn't stoop so low as to pick that up. We treat it like a penny on the ground. Just walk over it. Little do you know that penny is what will save your life. That penny is what you need when you stand before a just God of the, the just judge of the universe. Oh, that you today, if Jesus is working on your heart and drawing you to him, oh, that you wouldn't harden your heart. Oh, that you would repent and you would ask the Lord to forgive you. Jesus has power to forgive sin and Jesus has power to heal wounds. Some of you have sin that you need to repent of. Some of you have wounds that you need Jesus to heal. You need Jesus to see. Jesus offers forgiveness to the guilty, but he also offers healing to those who have been sinned against. And maybe that's you today. Don't harden your heart. Come to Jesus and let him heal you. Let him forgive the guilty and let him heal the wounded. Next, I want you to notice as we move quickly, the protection that Jesus offers as a means of a sovereignty. It's also with, included in the promises, we could say that, because it definitely falls within the promises of Jesus being the great shepherd, the good shepherd. Verse number eight, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Even disciples who fail him are still under his protective care and redemptive purposes. Jesus' disciples could have been arrested, possibly even facing the same punishment that Jesus will face. But Jesus protects them. Jesus protects them in this moment. Now that doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to them or to us. It's not true of these disciples. All 11 of them will be arrested. 10 of them will die martyrs' deaths. But in this moment, Jesus, he protects them physically in order to point to their spiritual protection, in order to point to his promise, in order to point to the truth that he is the good shepherd and he lays down his life for his sheep. So in the future, their faith in him will be increased. And he wants us to know the same thing. He wants us to know that it is he that is keeping us. It's not, he's not, we are not being kept by our own weak grip on him but because of his powerful grip on us. And Jesus's ultimate promise is that nothing will ever steal us from his hand. They may take our lives, but they will never take us from Jesus's hands. Jesus's holds them and Jesus's holds us. That's Jesus's protection. And lastly, Jesus's plan. Jesus shows his sovereignty in his plan in verse number 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup 
here it is again, that the Father has given me. That Peter wants to thwart the plan, but Jesus has been very clear throughout his teaching. The way up is down. Unless a seed falls to the ground and it dies, it bears no fruit. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit, Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches that there is no cross, there is no crown apart from a cross. There is no forgiveness apart from suffering that Jesus cannot bypass the cup, nor can he bypass the cross. And that says a ton about Jesus's kingdom, does it not? That even though Jesus is sovereign and he is Lord, he uses sinners who despises, despise him, a friend who betrays him, disciples who fail him in order to achieve his divine and redemptive purposes. That the good news is not Jesus has suffered so that you no longer have to. But the gospel is this, that Jesus takes on God's punishment. Jesus drinks that cup to its bitter dregs. Jesus drinks the cup that you and I could not drink. Jesus lives, he suffers, he dies, he rises again. And then because of our faith in him, you and I, we too will live like he did, which means you and I will live. We will suffer, we will die. And by Jesus's great grace, you and I will rise again to be with him. The good news is not that you do not have to suffer, but the good news is this, that your suffering matters. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter four like this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Jesus, may we trust your plan that even in confusing and dark and scary times in our life, may we trust that, Jesus, that you have real power to take even the worst things that may happen to us and use them for your own redemptive purposes in our lives. And Jesus, may we offer those things to you. May we see the example that you've set the example that you've set in your own life, the example you've set with your own teaching, that because you suffered, it doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer, but it does mean that you'll be with us in the midst of our suffering. And may we trust you. I don't know what everybody's going through here, but you do. And I pray for, pray for this flock that I dearly love and that you love, Lord, that they would trust your sovereign plan. They would trust your control and they would trust you. Lord, I pray for those in the room that may be struggling even now with a hard heart. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be the one that would, would quicken them and speak to them and do what only you can do. Your still, still soft voice, it trumps the old preacher screaming. And I tr my trust is in that not in my conjoling. My trust is in, in a spirit who's been given real power to resurrect the dead. And that's what I would ask you to do. Use my preaching. 
Use the preaching of the gospel to draw sinners to yourself. Use the preaching of the gospel to draw wounded saints to your side. Use the preaching of the gospel to call people whose hearts are growing embittered, people who are drifting, drifting in their unbelief, drifting towards apostasy, drifting towards sin. Call them to yourself and call them to your side. Even today, Lord, Lord, be sovereign over this moment. And I know that you are. You don't need me to ask you that you are, but we would invite the spirit just to do his will and do his bidding in our hearts and in our lives as we take time out to examine our lives, to examine our faith, to examine the trajectory of our lives and to do real business with you. And we find you and your spirit there as we do real business with you. May we be reminded of your gracious word May we be reminded of your gracious heart that you always welcomed prodigals home. Oh my goodness, what a great word. You always, you rejoice over lost things that have been returned and how much more do you rejoice over lost souls when they come home, when they've been found. And I pray today that there would be some in the room that would be found. I pray today that our resolve would be stronger than just broken promises made to you. But our repentance would be found in you and you alone. In your name we pray.